Hi, this is Bob Wells here, and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. This is the show where we hear about people's interests and uncover some fascinating stories at the same time. I hope you enjoy today's show. Hello, and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. In today's show, I'm joined by Sandra L. Rostirola. Sandra has recently published her book, Making Friends with Monsters, which has received many, many fantastic reviews since it was published earlier in the year. As well as being a successful author, Sandra is also into music. She released her debut album, Time, uh, written an award-winning screenplay called Life on Mars, and she's also written and directed an animation, Gilbert and the Goofball. Hello and welcome to Undercurrent Stories, Sandra. Hi there, Bob. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really excited to be here. It's great that we made contact and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Um, I have to say for listeners, this particular discussion um, is one of those subjects that um, many people would consider to be taboo. But I I think the fact that you brought this book out and you're bringing these sort of things into more mainstream uh, I think I think is great, and and a lot of that has been said by um, some of the people who've written reviews about your book and the interviews you've had. So, like I say, like, it may be difficult difficult sort of subject matter for some people, but I do I do think it's something that needs to be spoken about and shared. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Yes, I agree. Um, before we talk about the book, Making Friends with Monsters. Could you just tell us a little bit about your life's journey and how you got into writing? Because I, I know you're in America, but you're an Australian, aren't you? Uh, yes, an Australian living in Los Angeles. Okay, I will give you the quick cliff notes of my life, born in Sydney, Australia and raised. I'm a STEM girl, so physics, math, chemistry was really my path when I was at, at school, but I loved creative writing. I really did. It's just a bit when you're a STEM girl and that's where you get your strong marks, the teachers pat you on the head and say, that's a lovely little story, but off you go. You know, you're you're going to be some science girl and you just sort of follow what you're told. And so I did. I went to the University of Sydney and got a Bachelor of Applied Science majoring in physiotherapy. From there I was recruited to come to America because at the time America was dying for physical therapists they're called physical therapists over here so I thought why not you know go to America but here I stayed you know after 12 months I used my two weeks vacation time that they very kindly give you in America yeah and went back home so I kept coming back thinking I need to keep looking you know I haven't seen enough of America to leave but always I did still have that writing bug And so I ended up in Los Angeles, started taking classes at UCLA Extension, and that's where the penny dropped for me. One of the teachers, I took a story analysis class, and the tutor was saying that people that are good at math have been known to be good at plotting and writing stories. And that's where I went, oh, wow, that's good to know. And that, that, that moment gave me the permission to go, you know what, I think I, I will pursue writing prior to that all I had delved into was lyrics and I you had mentioned a long time ago I did have a band I met my husband Kurt who's actually from Switzerland he was doing film scoring in here in Los Angeles and so I just had that dream where I wanted to record and 
I was a young professional, so I could afford to do it. And that sort of spurned this little moment of putting a band together and, and doing an album. But I really wasn't that keen on the that life. That life meant touring and, and I just, that just wasn't what I wanted to do. So I pretty much after about a year or so just we abandoned the whole band idea and I just kept pursuing the writing. And it was really... I was doing screenplays, so thank you for acknowledging my one screenplay, Life on Mars. It, um, you know, the very first screenplay I wrote placed in a couple of different competitions, so I thought, yes, I can continue to do this. And it was really when my husband, he decided he wanted to write a ballet. He was working on film and television, but he just sort of wanted to do something that was his own. And so I chose to help him and said I'd be his librettist and we came up with a really basic five-act structure, which is what a ballet has, yeah. and he handed that off to me, just very simple things like Cecilia in Plockton Forest, Cecilia's journey, you know, just what these acts are going to be. And so my job was to come up with the story to help him then write the music too. Well, off I'd go and I'd start writing, and I thought this would be really easy because a ballet story only needs to be about 8 to 15 pages long. Long story short, every time I handed him pages, he kept saying, that's wonderful, keep writing. And so I ended up with 90 pages. And from there he turned around and said, he's too busy, he can't do the ballet anymore. And so I'm looking at all this work product and I just went, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I said, what am I supposed to do now? And that's when he said, write the novel. And at that time I'd never in a million years ever thought I'd ever write novels. I always thought, let me stick with screenplays. Screenplays are so much easier. All you have to do is write interior house day. You know, you don't have to describe the house. That's what the set, the set designer is going to do. The director yeah. sort of fill in the blank. But I thought, you know what? Fine, I'll do it. And that first book ended up doing quite well. Won a few little awards. That got me back to Australia, where I was doing a book launch for. Cecilia, The Last Croileteer, and one of my school friends came up to me and was telling me her story about a couple of years prior, her ex died by suicide and left her with three, three children. And my heart broke for my girlfriend because I just looked at her and said, oh, my gosh, you're my mum because my dad died by suicide when I was 13. Mum was left with five kids between the ages of 13 and 18. And my friend said to me, she's like, Sandra, I can cope with all of this, but what I can't deal with, what breaks me is when my little girls say, Mommy, why did Daddy do it? Yeah. What do you say? She had no idea what to say. And that really affected me a lot. It really did because we had a lot of silence in our family surrounding suicide and from the when I flew home, I had the trip home from Los, uh, Sydney back to Los Angeles. I just couldn't get this idea out of my head, and I just kept, you know, this story took over. It really did, and I came home and I kicked out making friends with monsters. I, I had to get that story out. Now this was just before the pandemic, yeah. and the pandemic hit. And I was sort of stuck because I did have other people asking me, well, is there going to be more from your fantasy, your YA fantasy series, you know, the Cecilia series? And I went, actually, yes. 
So I decided to kick out book two and three during the pandemic just to put my fantasy series to rest because I know there's nothing worse than your fans having a book and then waiting five years for the next instalments to come out. So I quickly wrapped that series up and then April this year I put out Making Friends with Monsters and it's been a bit of a whirlwind ever since. It, it, It is a little scary when you do put a book out that, tackles these heavier and potentially darker themes. Yes. But I'm very happy that people are appreciating it and understanding where I'm coming from. And I've got an author statement in the beginning that clearly lays out why I wrote the story and what the reader can expect. And my readers have been very gracious to me because ones that realise that they, because I basically say, if you feel like this book isn't ready for you, that's fine. You know, it'll be here for you later. And I have had people write reviews and they've still been very nice. They haven't been harsh to say, well, this is a one or a two because it's triggering. They're like, no, this author was completely fair. This author told me what potentially I was going to get into. And, you know, I read the opening and the writing was lovely, but it got to points where it, I couldn't, it didn't work for me, but that's okay. And I'm just, I'm not going to finish it at this time. Yeah. And I'm not fine with that. I am completely fine. And they've been very, very gracious. And they're still giving me great marks because they're still honoring what I'm doing and they understand why I'm doing it. They personally, whatever loss they've had, has just been a little bit too soon. So maybe in a year or two or three, yeah, it'll be, um, they'll be ready for it. And that's the whole point of my story. Yeah, and and one of the um, the things I find quite interesting is is uh, on on the people that have left the reviews, and there's been many of them. Um, seeing as that, seeing it as it is a young adult book, um, mm-hmm. it looks like it's been read by many adults. It is, um, which is quite interesting. Could, can you just tell us your thoughts on? on that I know and why? it's uh, look. Here's the thing: young adult in general probably has just as many adult readers as young adult readers. And I think one of the reasons why young adult is just loved by adults in general as a genre is it's usually the stories are not complicated. You have one protagonist, one point of view, very, I don't want to say simple prose, but, you know, we're not getting into all these complex kind of these words that you might have to have a dictionary next to you to look up some of these words. And we're not looking at things that are really, really complex and we don't have a lot of storylines to follow and usually they're books that can be read on the beach in one sitting because they are so easy to read so in that regard definitely that's one reason why I'm having a lot of adults write read my book yeah and and what I like is that the chapters are reasonably short as well which I like (laughs) (laughs) um that was I would say from my skill as an author, partly intentional and partly that was just the way it it fell. But I definitely know that one way to keep a a reader engaged is to keep things short and sweet because what will happen is they get to an end of the chapter and they'll go, oh, that was quick, and they might flick through the next chapter and go, oh, my gosh, this next one's pretty short. Let me do, let me read that. And the next thing they know, they've read the book. Yeah, and and I think certainly from my perspective, and and there may be other people like me, there may not be, but I'm one of these people, I I like to, I haven't got hours to read, so I tend to sort of read just before I go to sleep. So I'll go to bed, 
10, 15 minutes, and you can usually do a couple of short chapters, which keeps keeps you interested in, in your following evening. You know, doing the same exactly. Thing. As long as you do, you, you definitely keep a little cliff, cliffhanger at the end of the chapter, yes. you know, and that's what yes. I always made sure that I did, that each yeah. chapter at least ended with something where hopefully the reader's thinking, gosh, yeah. what, how's the family going to get through this little stumbling block or what's going to happen now yeah. kind of thing. So we've, t- we've talked about the book and, and you know, the purpose of it and everything, but could you just tell listeners a bit about the, um, the central concept of the story, please? Sure, sure. So the story is about 12-year-old Sam, and I just want to preface this. I, I intentionally chose a younger protagonist because I know my topics are heavy and difficult, but if they're filtered through the eyes of a 12-year-old, Sam is looking at this world and everything that's happening from a very innocent point of view. So my intent was hopefully his innocence wouldn't would help buffer some of the darkness. Yeah. So it's set in Australia during the millennial drought, which happened from the year 2000 to 2006, and... Sam's on a farm and his farm is really, really struggling. But his biggest concern is with his older brother, Ben, who's done a complete 180 on the family. And Ben used to be Sam's best friend. He used to be this really great, fun-loving teen. And all of a sudden he's dark and moody and just doesn't want to do anything with anyone. And Sam talks to his parents about it and his mum's pretty much like, oh, it's fine, Ben's just a teenager, it's a phase that he's going through. And they don't seem that concerned. But Sam looks at all of this and he says, no, that's it. it's not a phase. Something else is going on with my brother. My brother's got a monster. And so he sets out on this little journey to find out everything he can about these monsters. And along the way, he collects all these facts, you know, like fact number one about monsters. Most people don't know they exist. Fact number eight about monsters, everyone has one. And his hope is that once he gets all this research he'll be able to help his brother with his own monster but what ends up happening is because Ben's not doing what he's supposed to do Sam fills in for his older brother and ends up having a really bad accident and that accident brings out Sam's monster and that's kind of the the big journey I wanted the reader to go through where they're actually living watching you know they're right with Sam as Sam starts to devolve and his monster starts to take over and then they, they watch as Sam deals with it and how is he going to deal with his monster and what does Sam have to do in order to make friends with his monster, which is the, the, the premise of the book. And that was the journey I really wanted to put the reader on and I was very hopeful that as the reader read, maybe they would have some insight, maybe some of the facts that Sam comes across like, One of the other facts, I'm not sure of the number, but let's just say fact number 20 about monsters, they're so addictive, it's easy to just sit back and let them do their thing. And I definitely have had some readers reach out to me and go, oh, I screamed when I read this fact because I went, oh, my gosh, that's me. That's what I do. That's what my monster's doing to me. And that was sort of the whole point of the whole thing was just to – help people look a little bit more at themselves and what's happening with them and making it a little bit more palatable by just talking about these kind of monsters that that you have and how to maybe hopefully deal with them 
I guess. And yeah, it was really just to help start a dialogue between people. So I I think you've covered, I was going to ask you what people can expect from the book, but I think, I think you've covered that really. Um, Because obviously the the book deals with many issues such as grief, suicide, poverty, injury, and, and various other taboo subjects, which you, you consider to be monsters. Um, no, that those, oh yes, it depends. So grief, absolutely what ends up leading to suicide. So the premise is Sam is worried that Ben's monster will turn around and swallow him whole. And that is absolutely the metaphor for suicide. If your monster does that to you, um, the external factors like poverty and things like that, they're they're things that would maybe potentially bring out a monster but monsters in short form are our emotions. They're things, they're our negative emotions that we don't like, whether it be anxiety, nervousness, being shy, being angry, fearful. Any of those emotions are what Sam's con- Sam considers to be a monster. Yes. And what he learns is that, Monsters, the way they're built, they're very short and stocky and round and they're they're very strong. And he actually learns that monsters are okay to have, that it's actually okay to get angry or it's okay to be sad. I mean, we're humans. We were evolved with these emotions for for a reason. And I think through life, for whatever reason, we're told to suppress certain emotions. And the suppressing part is not good because when you suppress what Sam learned is when he was sad, he didn't want to feel sad. His monster doesn't doesn't like that feeling. So his monster would suppress that emotion, but then it would convert into something else and that sadness would convert into anger. And, of course, that's not good. And what he learned was that the monsters are there and they're okay to be there to support you when you need them because we actually do need to have these emotions to help us get through different things. What becomes problematic is when we rely on our monsters for too long because they're not sprinters. They can't run marathons. They're only there to do the short heavy lifting and then you're supposed to take back over. But when you force them or let them let them be the ones leading things, that's when the problems start to happen. That's when someone will spiral down and stay in a particular um, frame of mind which isn't healthy. Thank, so, thank yeah, you. So ultimately yeah. monsters are our emotions and the big part why I wanted to kind of get to young readers is especially young teens and when you're in like upper middle school areas, we have big emotions, you know, hormones are coming in and they have these big emotions and they have no idea how to deal with them. And so I'm hopeful if they read my book, they'll be like, oh, that's just my monster going a little bit crazy at the moment and that's okay for my monster to be angry for a little while and um, live in that emotion but then move on. Once you acknowledge what's happening, and how important is it to so what? Yeah, what what you're basically saying, as I understand it, is you, you have an emotion. It could, it could be fright or anger or anxiety. What you're saying is that the main thing that you have to do is to be able to accept it, yes, uh, and realize it's there. In other words, I think acknowledge might be a better a better word. Mm-hmm. Acknowledge it and and then move on. And and how how would you say important is 
talking and sharing about, and I'm talking about young people particularly, how, how important is it for them to share how they feel with other people? Oh, yeah, that's that's hugely important because the thing is it's very difficult to share what's going on if you haven't actually bothered to stop and think about what's going on. So, so if you at least have that one step to acknowledge, oh, gosh, you know, I'm really angry about whatever, maybe it's this little thing, that is going to be so, if, if you don't have that acknowledgement first, it's going to be very difficult for you to even be able to talk about your emotions and you're not even going to be able to understand them. But sharing is hugely important. However, the, the caveat is, so Sam has this little interaction with his, with his love interest and she's going through something and Sam goes up to her and he notices that she's really withdrawn and not her normal, her normal interactive bubbly self and he says to her, is everything okay? And, he sa- and she says, no, yeah. everything's not okay. Um, oh, no, sorry, she says, no, I'm okay. My mon- however, my monster's not. He wants to be left alone at the moment. That's how she approaches it. Yes. And poor Sam is like, oh, he's like, okay, that hurts a little bit. But then he says, you know, at least it's her monster telling me to go away and not her. And so he's like, that's fine. I'm going to give her her space. So he leaves and, and gives her a space. So it's sort of a two-way street. Sometimes when people are in a heightened state of emotions, if we are able to look at our friends or our loved ones or our partners and go, oh, they're in a high state of emotion at the moment. Their monster's going a little bit crazy. I'm going to give them space and not push them. I'm going to step away. So it it becomes a two-way street where if you can look at people's emotions as their monsters being a bit heightened and giving them space, that's going to help your relationship in as much as that person going through that moment, right at that moment they might not be able to talk about what's going on, but if they comprehend that they've got this emotion and they're just going to live with it until it calms down, then in that calm phase they're able to go back to their partner and loved one and say, hey, look, I was a bit of a, I don't want to swear, but a bit of an yeah. a-hole back a little while ago. I'm so sorry I did that. You know, you know, it just yeah. helps to create a dialogue. But I, I, I don't know whether people can talk about their emotions right in the moment that they're going through it. If that does that make sense? Yes, it does. I mean, I, I think it's 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 that whole thing of of acknowledging, and and I think you know us adults as well. We we probably sometimes go off on one, you know. And, and perhaps need to take time to acknowledge. But sometimes, even though you think, yeah, I need to acknowledge it and, and accept that feeling as it is, sometimes in the heat of the moment, you don't even think about acknowledging it. And um, what, what would you suggest to people, not just young people, but people who, by your suggestion about acknowledging something, how, how can they make themselves always remember to acknowledge? I think part of it is, I guess I'm going to talk from the standpoint of one of the reviews that I read online yeah. where for them that was the penny drop moment for them. They acknowledged that one of their emotions, like they would be quick to anger or frustration, and I, I, I wish I had it pulled up so I could could read it, and they said, oh, my gosh, it's such a simple solution, but they actually never even thought to acknowledge their emotion. And just having that penny drop 
that it was okay for them to acknowledge their emotion, I think knowing that is was all they needed. Does yes. that make does that make sense? It's because yeah. they, they never even knew to think about no and, and it, it, yeah this this has got me thinking because it it's um it resonates with I think it was Viktor Frankl who said that there's a gap between stimulus and response. Therein sort of lies the ability to be able to either react to something or respond respond to it. So when you feel yourself, you know, somebody says something, you feel yourself going to give a, a sharp retort. You've got the freedom then to actually acknowledge it and respond rather than just react. Yeah. I think so it's I connected, guess, isn't it? Yeah. So I guess ultimately it's learning. You know, I don't know whether there is anything I can tell people to how to remember to acknowledge. It's more now that you've learned that one plus one equals two, you know what I mean? Like now that you've learned it's okay to acknowledge your emotion, I think that's the key. Yeah. He's going, oh, I'm going to acknowledge, I'm going to give give myself permission to feel this way rather than fight the emotion. I think a lot of people tend to fight the emotion or ignore it. Like anger is such a great emotion because it feels so good. Let's, let's, Let's face it. I think... Yeah. You know, we feel so good in anger because it dulls so many of the other emotions that we don't want to feel. And I'll talk from my personal experience. My personal experience is anger is my default emotion and I will be upset. Someone will hurt me. I'll feel physical hurt, pain, and normally I'll then just jump straight to anger because that squashes that physical hurt, pain. Yes. And just through my own growth over the years of I've read like a bunch of self-help books and, and just all those different things, that's my take on it. It might not be a scientific or psychological take, but my take was once I learned to go, oh, I've bypassed this emotion of pain and I've gone straight to anger. Once I had that mental click and I understood what was happening, it, it was way easier for me to sort of come down from the anger, way yeah. easier because yeah. I understood what was happening. But when yeah. I didn't understand what was happening, I just stayed in anger because it kind of felt good. And then you're embarrassed. You're embarrassed because you're in anger. And that embarrassment keeps you angry for even longer. Do you know what I mean? And it becomes this horrible cycle. But I'm able to break that cycle so much earlier now by understanding yeah. what my emotions are doing. I have to say that this, this is a, this is quite a heavy discussion for our um, podcast. <laughs> got, um, and, I, and I mean it in, in the best possible sense because a lot of our um, shows are, you know, musicians, historians, and things like that, and we're getting into psychological uh, psychology, really, territory here, which is which is very interesting. But I, I like the way we can talk about it. Um, and and this, these subjects of of um, not talking to youngsters or children about subjects like suicide. Why why do you think? Oh, two questions, really. Why have they been taboo for so long, and and are they still taboo? Do you think? They're get, definitely getting better, definitely getting better. I would say one of the reasons they've been taboo for so long is we would think about one of the primary religions, at least the religion I grew up with, which was Catholicism. Suicide is a sin, right? It's a complete and utter sin. So, of course, if someone in your family dies by suicide, that, that's, a, that's an awful thing in that religion so you're not going to talk about it there are many families that 
dad died by a heart attack or there's going to be other reasons. I mean, I'm sure in the Catholic, um, Catholic Church there were many, many, many heart attacks that happened that weren't really heart attacks. They were probably suicide. And in my family that was the big thing that caused, I would say, me a lot of anguish, but it was in the later years. My mum was great. Mum was completely honest when yeah. I got home from school. My, my Myself and my second oldest brother, we were the two youngest, we were still at school, at high school. She told us. She didn't try to hide it. She didn't try to come up with some other weird story or anything. She told us exactly what happened. And that didn't weird me out or anything. I think I was just... No. It, 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 it's what I needed to know. It was yes. the next generation. It was when my siblings got older and they had children. When the kids started to ask, "Hey, mom, you know what happened to Papa? What happened to Grandpa?" That's when this la- layer of not telling the full truth happened, where it was, "Oh, he died by a heart attack, and Uncle Martin had an accident," yeah. and they never knew, and uh, that confused me. I'm over in America not knowing all this, and I came home one year and I had no idea that these alternate stories had been told to my nieces and nephews. And that just caused this undercurrent of frustration at my end because I felt like it's not my responsibility to tell my my nieces and nephews the, the truth um, and I didn't want to lie to them. And, it, yeah, honestly, it was just, weird it was really weird and and it was actually my book I have to say it was my book when it came out I had to tell my family this book is coming out I am going to be talking about my family history so it's probably time that you guys sit down and have a talk yeah and I I can I totally get the um you know the catholic church and it's a sin and and all that um but I, I guess do you think that children or is there any evidence to suggest that children are perfectly capable of hearing these sort of um, um, hearing about these subjects? Or, and is there a is there an age limit? Would it would you, yeah. would you talk to a very so young child? There, there is a study that was done, and this um, institute, what are they called? Um, oh, I can't think of what they're called, but they're out in um, Utah, and yeah. They've done a whole bunch of studies, and I really like their guide. Basically, the, the premise always is never lie. You never tell up, never tell a story. The hard part is how do you make it age appropriate? And they've got this wonderful guide, and I can give the listeners a little bit of an idea. So they basically say for young ch- children, so from seven and under, you just keep it very simple when it comes yeah. to talking about suicide, and you say something as simple as. This person had a disease in their brain and it took over. They died and it's very sad. And usually that sort of lead, that's enough for a little kid. They can comprehend that. They tend not to have a lot of follow-up questions. And then as they get older, you know, you can um, go a little bit further with it. So maybe you want to use the word depression. So maybe for the 7- to 10-year-old, children you can say something like James had a disease called depression and he had it for many years I wish he would have been able to get more help 
you know, little things, and you just gradually start to bring in new words. And then the, the next one, which I thought was really fascinating, was by the time you get to middle schoolers, like the 11 to 14-year-olds, if there's been some sort of death either in your family or they've had a friend who's either died by suicide or their parents died by suicide, you just turn it around on the child first. You basically ask them, because they're dealing with a lot of big emotions, chances are they've definitely heard about suicide. So you ask them, you say to them, what have you heard and what do you know about suicide? And, you know, what feelings do you have about it? And what do you believe causes suicide? Because they're at an age now where they can talk a little bit more intellectually than a younger kid can, right? So they're going to have already some ideas formulated. So then as you as the adult, you can then come in, find out what they, your child knows, what they think they know, and then you can fix any miscommunication, right? So anything they don't, anything they might've got wrong, you're then able to correct that. And then, of course, as you as they get older, teenagers, teenagers can definitely deal with a lot. You can go into definitely more detail about, about everything. And when you get to teenagers, you can actually be more direct and you can ask them, have you had any suicidal thoughts, you know, or are you concerned that you have any friends that are maybe having these thoughts? Because what you're doing is you're just normalising the conversation. It, it, it just becomes another topic like drugs or alcohol, it would be the same thing. Are you concerned that any of your friends are drinking too much or whatever the case may be? And that's the whole, the main thing is to normalise the topic. I know that the the book sort of uh, fundamentally discusses the ability of, of, of young adults to actually talk about these things. Um, but in terms of, of somebody who is, shall we say, on the edge in contemplating suicide, um, have you had a, have you had any stories from or heard anything from people about how the how the book has affected people in that respect? Uh, no, I haven't haven't had any feedback from that regard. What I have had is feedback from two two people. One was the person that my school friend who inspired me to even write this book, and another one is someone who's started an organisation because her stepchild, who she was very, very close to, died by suicide. Um, She was about 15 years old. Both of them got back to me and said, wow, after reading your book, it helped with a lot of closure. And they, they said it helped them look back retrospectively about what their loved one was going through and they saw the signs, the signs were there. And that helped them. They both said that they got a lot of closure and it it really helped them understand a lot more what their loved one was going through. And I guess that if if a young adult read this book um, or even anybody any age would read the book, um, it provides the opportunities to sort of have a look at what possible signs could be if they, you know, if they were looking at somebody else and thinking, well, that's that person's acting out something which could be, you know, possibility of, of suicide exactly exactly yeah. so yeah so I, I definitely I haven't had that direct feedback yet of wow I was on the edge I read your book and I'm no longer on the edge kind of thing but I definitely have had younger adults I mean like in the sorry young adults which would be young 20s I uh, had one girl 
you know, hold my book to her chest and say, I wish I had have had something like this to read when I was in middle school, yeah. when I was younger. It yeah. would have helped them. They said they just would have helped them understand so much more about what was going on. So I've definitely had that said to me. Um, and my be- what, what I had was beta readers. So before you publish, you make sure you have your target audience read your book. And that target audience included parents so and parents yes. and kids from about 11 to 15. And two of my readers, both of which were boys, they both wrote me letters, which broke my heart. It was so heartwarming because while I want everyone to read this book, I've got a soft spot for boys because it's my dad and two brothers that have died by suicide. So the fact that they connected with Sam and they it they just loved the story enough that they wrote me letters to say how much they loved the story. And one of them, I mean, he even wrote this book could save lives. He really wow. thought he, as wow. it would be great if teachers had it as a book to yes. read in class and then you'll do, you, you're sort of having a Q&A discussion with the, the kids and the teacher that that would be just a, such a great way to get this story out there. And, of course, I'm like, yes, that's exactly. Well, do you know, that, that was um, a good segue to my question I was going to ask about that because obviously by the sound of it, uh, if, it if it was the sort of book that was in the curriculum um, or even in a library that, that – um, young adults could read I, th- I think it would be fantastic so have, yeah. have you spoken to any anybody in education or any teachers about it oh absolutely absolutely so one of the big conferences I went to it's called the ALA which is the American Library Association that was amazing because that was my target audience I had all these librarians there and it was really great because I was when you release a book you do all these things to get ARC readers so you send out galleys because you want to get the the awareness out before it becomes alive and you just got to be bold when I was at the conference you've got to sort of go up to all these librarians and start telling them about your book and there was a whole group sort of lined up for something else and it was just lovely to hear this one librarian she said oh making friends with monsters I read your book and I loved it she had read it because she'd received an early arc and I went that's amazing and another conference that I was invited to go to with a group called the ACRC, which is the Association of Children's Residential Services, they invited me to their annual conference in Minneapolis back in oh, May. Wow. And they wanted me to present my book, and which I thought was amazing because they only had a, a handful of presenters there, and they were all the you know PhDs. They were all presenting their books that were the nonfiction books, right? Yeah. And here's mine as a fiction, a fiction book. And it was just so lovely. And they understood, they got it because their their homes deal with troubled teens. And the biggest compliment I could have received was when the director of the organisation or she's someone high up in the organisation said that she believes that every child counsellor should have this book on their shelves. Oh, that's fantastic. That's such a um, heartwarming recommendation. But, yes, I do know that it's definitely in some classes yeah. because one of the social workers from that I met at that conference, she went off and told her friend who's a teacher and then she sends me a photo of my book, as like a stack of my books on a shelf with all these other books, and I said, oh, what's this from? She said, oh, my teacher, my teacher friend bought them. That's her classroom. So my book's in this classroom, a whole bunch of my books, and I just went, yay, this is wonderful. So it's happening, yes. Sandra, where can people find out more about you and the book? 
they can go to my website, which is www.s for Sandra, L for Louise, and Rosterola, R-O-S-T-I-R-O-L-A.com. Or a lot easier is just go to makingfriendswithmonsters.com. Bit easier to remember. And I'm on all social media. I'm on LinkedIn, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And everything is pretty simple. It's all at SL Rosterola. Nice and simple. And we'll put it on the show notes, Sandra. Um, so what's next? What plans do you have? I've gone back to my fantasy roots and I have started a new YA fantasy called The Isles of Tarimdra. And it's still in early days. I've definitely done all the backstory. So I, I, I've really built this world out big time. But the premise is these lands have lost their magic. They used to have magic and all the magic is gone. And our young protagonist, Regan, she's actually a princess and she's really frustrated because she knew that magic used to exist and she's frustrated that she's living in a time where magic doesn't exist. But then people start to display magical abilities and she's wondering why, how is this happening? And the frustrating thing is she can't. There's something about her that's very different from everyone else and she doesn't know what it is or why. And that's going to be the premise of this hopefully maybe four or five book series and and this will be for young adults again will it again it will be for young adults have, yes. have you have you considered writing for adults no because you were getting me interested <laughs> then <laughs> i don't think so i think uh, yeah i no i'll just leave it i'll, yeah, I'll just yeah, leave yeah, it yeah, at yeah. that yes <laughs> i mean i was thinking of c.s lewis and tolkien but but some would argue they are for for young adults well, the, here's the thing. When they wrote their books, especially Tolkien, I'm not even sure these genres existed. You know, no, like the, no. the age grouping didn't exist, the no. YA thing. That's just more of a, a recent book-selling tactic, if that makes sense. But when you look at Tolkien, the story is absolutely YA, absolutely. Yeah. But the way he's written it, it's hard to read. He, he goes into a lot of backstory you know, he's he's got his path, but then off he'll go. He'll go off and tell you about the elves and yeah. you're off in this other world for sometimes several pages. And that I think that's the big difference that YA has. You don't do that. You keep it simple and yeah. stay in the, the one point of view. Well, Sandra, this has been a really interesting conversation. I know we've tackled some difficult subjects here. Um, yes. But I think think with the work that you've been doing um, and bringing it out to making it more less taboo for, for you know, the whole world and, and uh, if that can help a few people, just a few people, that that's fantastic. My guest today has been Sandra L. Rosterola. Sandra has brought out her new book, Making Friends with Monsters, and you can find details about the book and all the links to Sandra's work on the show notes. Thank you for coming on the show, Sandra. Thank you for having me, Bob. I really appreciate you and all that you do. You have been listening to Undercurrent Stories. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to share the show link to your friends and family. And if you have 60 seconds, I would be most grateful if you would please rate and review. To hear more episodes... Please subscribe to the show and visit undercurrentstories.com. If you leave your email in the link, 
we will notify you as soon as new episodes are released. Also, check out our social media links, details of which can be found on the show notes. Until next time, this is Bob Wells wishing you all the very best. <laughs>